follow along with me, please. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. We thank the Lord this morning for his word. The plan for this passage is to take three weeks to consider the story of Lazarus' resurrection. And, and the primary teaching that we get from this story is, of course, when Jesus does appear to Mary and Martha and he has one of those very important I am statements. Do you know which one it is? Perhaps you can see it already. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The resurrection and the life. John loves in his gospel to highlight the I am statements of Jesus. And they just keep getting better and better every time, don't they? More and more as we go through this Gospel of John, it is worthwhile for us to take a couple steps back and to be reminded of where we came from and what Jesus has done in his miraculous ministry and what he is headed towards in this chapter. That it is not a light thing that Lazarus will be raised from death to life, and that Christ's primary message in this story, in this miracle, in his allowing Lazarus to pass from this life to the next, and then to only bring him back, which must have been a shocker to him of all people, but that his primary message is to show that Jesus does not only have life, that he does not, is not only the one who can do resurrection but rather that in his very being, he himself is the resurrection and the life. It puts such great emphasis when we talk about Christians as being in Christ. 
that in Christ we have resurrection and life and light and hope and love and all these wonderful things. And my very good friend, J.C. Ryle, who passed away in the year 1900, who's been helping me through the Gospel of John, had an entire paragraph that I could not but put in the notes this morning. He says this of this passage. Nowhere shall we find such convincing proofs of our Lord's divine power. As God, he makes the grave itself yield up its tenants. Nowhere shall we find such striking illustrations of our Lord's ability to sympathize with his people. As man, he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Such a miracle well became the end of such a ministry. It was meet and right that the victory of Bethany should closely precede the crucifixion of Calvary. The mission of Jesus was to go to the cross. And the last major miracle that John highlights for us on Jesus' way to the cross is the raising of Lazarus from death to life. Now the overall title of these three messages has to be the resurrection and the life. Otherwise, we missed a very easy question on the test. This is the main point that Jesus is getting at. But the verses that we read just now, we might put a subtitle to, kind of like in those old Rocky and Bullwinkle episodes, you know, where they used to have this title or this other title. Sometimes it's hard to title sermons, so the subtitle of this would be Our Friend in Health and Sickness. Our Friend in Health and Sickness. Jesus' heart for Lazarus, for his sisters, for all of his disciples is plainly laid out for us here. And it is necessary for us this morning to think of Christ, not only as the Son of God, though he clearly is, and that is the primary title that we ought to know him by, but that in addition to that, and the way we view him as the Son of God is to understand that he is also our friend. And the context wherein we ought especially to think of Jesus as our friend is in times of sickness and trial and challenges and sadness. Jesus' incarnation, his becoming human, puts so much more reality and more emphasis to the fact of God's closeness to his people. The incarnation was not just a magic trick to show how God might, through virgin birth, bring about his son into the world and make him look like any one of us. It was his perfect plan to redeem and perfectly restore the creation that was lost. To bring about righteousness and life and even resurrection. And the only way that God saw fit to do this was by sending his son, not as a spiritual being only, but as a flesh and blood member of the human race. Talk about your basic Sunday school truths that ought to be highlighted and blown up in our minds to grasp the bigness of the incarnation and his mission so clearly shown here. Though there is a big question mark in the midst of it, you know from the end of Lazarus' story that nobody went up to Jesus and said, why'd you do that? What's the point? He was clear with them. You remember when he talks to his opponents, to the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, those who are coming up to him to try to catch him in something he has to say, he's not one to be 
perfectly plain before them, but he speaks in parables and sometimes almost in riddles, still saying things that are true, but keeping some of the plainness behind a metaphor. Particularly, we learn that in the preceding chapters when Jesus came plainly before them in chapter 10 and said, you don't believe, you don't understand, you don't receive my words because you're not my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Even in sickness, we understand the friendship of God. So what do you think of the Lord in the middle of your hard and trying times in your life? Maybe this past week presented new challenges and our minds don't immediately go over to what is the Lord doing in this? And we might even have friends who do do that, right? And we might call them up or send them a text message or communicate with them in some way as to find sympathy, to find some camaraderie in the midst of the trial or sickness that we're facing. And maybe you have that friend who says, well, what do you think the Lord's teaching you through this? And you just want to say, dude, don't go that way yet. I just want you to sympathize. I want you to feel some of this before immediately jumping to the theological lofty thoughts of why and how. It may be that we can boil down some of our thought processes to three different ways of understanding the trials and sicknesses and issues that we find in life. The first one, and a very spiritual sounding one, is to understand challenges and trials and difficulties as just that, as tests from the Lord. And if we were to set aside our thoughts of who the Lord is, but understand that some things in life are indeed tests of our faith, we might have that attitude of saying, okay, Lord, pass me the test, put it on my desk, go back to your desk, I'll sit here and fill out all the answers to the best of my ability, and then we'll see if you accept me at the end of it. I'm going to take this by myself, all alone. I loved it in middle school teaching, when students inevitably, at least one time a year, would say, do we have to work on this test by ourselves? And then you kind of wonder, like, do I need to quit? Like, am I that bad at this? That they don't understand what a test is? Inevitably, there's a longing for us to share in our trials, right? Whether we initiate that in our friendships and family members or not, we often live our Christian lives alone but wish that we didn't have to. Secondly, we might imagine that these challenges or trials or sicknesses that we face are errors. I messed up and so I'm reaping what I sow. It's a perfectly logical assumption. But can we always know? Can we know exactly why sickness comes after perhaps we have messed up in one way or shape or form? The third one being it's a mystery. I can't know why I'm facing this trial or sickness or challenge, and therefore I'm just going to ignore it. I'm not going to let it become anything more than just a roadblock, just an issue, just another thing to put on my calendar this week. Didn't have time to get sick today, but it happened, and we're just going to have to deal with it. These are the mindsets that we have when we remove the Lord's presence from the trials, challenges, and sicknesses that we face. We want to handle them on our own. We can't truly know in every scenario whether something has happened in order to produce a test 
or because of an error on my part, or if it is just simply a mystery and without any explicit reason. We can't always know. But don't we try to solve that all the more? Don't we try to discover what the meaning and purpose of this is? And, and if we're not in Christ, if we don't have our minds tuned in any way to a spiritual reality, what, what, what a strange life that must be to not, to, to not at all think about spiritual things. Not that people who aren't in Christ don't think spiritually. But if we have our minds just simply fixed on this world and its own purposes and designs, then there's really no meaning to be found in anything. Something that we need to notice in light of all of this is the return of the disciples. For much of the Gospel of John, we don't hear about the disciples even necessarily being with Jesus. We kind of assume that in a lot of places, and rightly so, I'd say. But it's important then for us to recognize when the disciples do talk, because in the Gospel of John, they don't talk as much as some of the other Gospels. So when Thomas speaks, when Mary and Martha speak, when anyone besides Jesus or his opponent speaks, we ought to recognize this not only as a new character, but almost sort of as our own point of view, our own perspective in the story. The way that we fix our eyes and, and focus on what's going on. If we are indeed disciples of Christ, if we are indeed the friends of Jesus. Another point to the importance of this story, uh, D.A. Carson, a theologian, says that Chapter 1, verse 19, when the story begins, and it began for us all those months ago, all the way up to the end of chapter 42 include what we call an inclusio, that is just a very clearly marked off section of scripture. And that chapter 11 has a dramatic turn in that Jesus has faced so much opposition and has fled that opposition time and time again. And he will face opposition one more time before coming to the cross, but the days are limited. And so the purpose of his actions, though, though his purpose is always important, it almost heightens the importance because he is on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the cross. And would it not have been easier for him to let Lazarus bypass this whole sickness thing, snap his fingers, heal him from a great distance so that he could get back to what's really important? The fact that he doesn't do that shows us that this is important. That Christ, our Lord, the Son of God, our friend, cares about the sicknesses and weaknesses of his people. Four things that I wouldn't be upset if you were writing things down, if you wanted to write these things down. Our central teaching in this passage is indeed that verses 25 through 26, the I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. The central teaching of chapter 11. And then we have love being the dominant emotion of chapter 11. I don't know if when you followed along and listened to those first 16 verses, did you feel the emotional weight of love that Christ has for his people? Thirdly, glory being the great end of chapter 11, the great end, the great ultimate purpose in all the things that happen. We read that. Jesus has already said in verse 4, this illness doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So death is not the main purpose of this illness. We also see that there's an either-or statement here that is implicit. That either death is going to be the ultimate victor in Lazarus' life, or something else is, and that is the glory of God. And so it is for your life, the great end 
of this chapter, the glory of God. And then lastly, faith, the necessary response of chapter 11. We've seen that already here foreshadowed, of course, when Jesus says in verse 14, Lazarus has died for your sake. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe the necessary response. Christ, who is the light of the world, we read that from chapter nine, chapter eight and chapter nine, thinking about um, Jesus as the one who shines brighter than the lights in Jerusalem that lit up the whole city. Christ himself is the one who lights the world. And, and in his teaching in verse nine, he talks about the light of the world. He's referring to the sun, but he's also referring to the sun, S-U-N and S-O-N. He's referring to himself as the light of the world and that as we go with him, we have the light of this world and the light of life and he being our truest friend, the one with whom we are meant to walk through these trials by his light and by his friendship, no matter what those trials might be, to ultimately find their purpose in the glory of God. But we miss that purpose, don't we? When was the last time you were sick? Some of you are like, last time, working on the next time already. When was the last time that you felt the physical weakness of this world acutely in your own life? And did you so quickly run to the question of what is the glory of God in this? Or even what is the purpose? Did you ask that question of, is this a mystery? Is this a test? Or is this an error? Is it a punishment? Did you ask those kind of questions? It seems that his disciples and maybe even Mary and Martha and Lazarus himself in their waiting for Jesus may have missed the purpose that Jesus lays out for us here in the Gospel of John. And we, with our, you know, uh, our, our objective view towards this, it's, it seems so clear and obvious to us. But if we insert ourselves into the story, we'd be asking the same kind of questions. Why are you going back? Why are you going back now? Why didn't you go back before? What's going on? What's your purpose? What's the plan? And to understand all those things, we have to start with considering the weight of the friendship that Jesus has. So look at the beginning of chapter 11 with me, please, in verses 1 and 2. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. He's named, but he's also identified in the first place as a certain man. It's interesting that in these kinds of stories, it's so insightful to replace Lazarus's name with your own and kind of consider yourself in his shoes. A certain man, a certain woman was ill. This certain man happened to be called Lazarus, but he could have been any one of us. Illness is a universal challenge and trial that we face in this world because of sin. So this man, this certain man, verse 2, is specified as, sorry, from the village of Mary and her sister Martha, he being their brother. In verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. We haven't even heard that story yet, but John's already referring to it. We'll see that in a couple chapters. So Mary is rather important, we might think. She's the one who anointed the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was their brother, Lazarus, who was ill. And then we have verse 5. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why does John feel it's so important to tell us that? Except for the fact that it is indeed important. And it does indeed set the tone, the emotional tone of this chapter is one of love, of real and divine affection, because we are talking indeed about Jesus' love for them. 
back up again to verse 3 then. In light of that reality of that relationship here, look at the simple message of the sisters to Jesus. If you could write on a piece of paper and hand it off to somebody and say, take this to Jesus, I don't know about you, my first thought is how much paper do I have? Right? How many times can I rewrite this and then am I going to be able to say everything that I want to say? How concerned would you be about getting it right in talking to Jesus? Look at what they say. Verse 3, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Do they ask for healing? Do they ask for Jesus to come to him? Do they ask for Jesus' wisdom or counsel or advice or anything? There's a way that we could look at this passage and just say, you know what? Prayer meetings, kind of pointless. We ought to pray like Mary and Martha here. Simple, concise, humble, pure, and certainly full of love. Well, that's not to say that Mary and Martha did not have long conversations with Jesus. We know from the other Gospels of times that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning and listening, and, and it carried on so much that Martha was like, somebody's got to do the dishes, and gets upset because her sister continues to hear from Jesus and presumably to speak with him. But consider the strength of the simple prayer, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I'd be inclined to pray that prayer this morning as I left my wife home sick today. Lord, she whom you love is ill. It's a simple statement of trusting Christ with the person that we love because we know that he loves them as well and even better than we could imagine. But then we come to the difficult response. This is great context of friendship and love, the simple prayer, but then there's a difficult response. Verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. Good. I like this. It is for the glory of God. That sounds important. Okay, I'm still with you. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, through it. What does that mean? Curious. But then verse 5, Jesus loved Mary and Martha, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... And one commentator very wisely pointed out that in verse 6, it doesn't say but or although, but it actually says so. This is a connecting word that says that in light of this thing, this thing happened. Not in contrast, but because of, as a natural and intended reaction. He loved them, so what is the implied request? Lord, he whom you love is ill. We'd like to see you. If at all possible, would you heal him? But the main point is, could you please come? He loved them, so he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, what is your first response to hearing that? Oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and beyond finding out. All you holy people that think that, right? Hear us in the real world, though, to consider that we might pray to Jesus in, in a simple and humble fashion to ask for his help in whatever way that might look like. If we could find out that Jesus was busy doing something else or had intentionally stalled and delayed coming for two whole days. What? Really? 
You love Lazarus, don't you? You love me. You love your people. Sickness is bad. Trials slow us down. Difficulties prove to be too much for us so often. How is it that you love me and yet you stay two days longer in that place? Again, at the beginning of verse 4, it seems very hopeful. And when he says this is for the glory of God, the disciples around him might even be thinking back to chapter 9. Do you remember the man born blind? And the disciples say, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? And he says, it wasn't about somebody's sin, but so that the glory of God might be shown through him. Okay, naturally. All right, so that's the purpose of Lazarus' illness. So you're going to do the same thing again. You're going to do it just like you did it for the blind man, right? Because you're fair and equal with everybody. And so the way I interpret fairness and equality is that he gets this treatment, therefore I get that treatment. Nope. Lazarus is going to die. And in the simplicity of our thought process, Lazarus is going to die because... Jesus is going to let him die. Is that true? Did Jesus let this thing happen? It might be easier for us to ask this question. Did he cause it to happen? Well, no. We, we certainly should not attribute guilt to God for the bad things that happen here on earth because we know what sin does. The wages of sin is death. Death that comes to all, whether God's people or not. But when he could have stopped something from happening and chose not to, why did he delay? And then why suddenly in verse 7 does he say, after this he said to the disciples, now we'll go. Oh, now you will. Now you have time. Now it fits your plans better. I don't know if you know this, Jesus. Lazarus is sick, and it doesn't look good, and we think he's going to die. Mary and Martha, in their humility, didn't include all of that. And really, at this point in the story, they probably don't know that Jesus is delaying intentionally, but what we do know geographically is that Jesus is less than a day's walk away from coming from the Mount of Olives to the city of Bethany. Just two, minute, two miles away from Jerusalem. It's not far. It wasn't that he didn't have time. It was that it wasn't time. And who handles time better, you or God? Again, very good Sunday school answer, yes. God created time. He does it better than me. Oh, the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his ways. His path's beyond finding out. Yet when we're real with this passage, we can think back to our own seasons of life where we would have wondered, why didn't you stop this thing from happening? And when it happened, why didn't you cut it off sooner? And why did you let this person that I love die? When you could have done something about it. My friend J.C. Ryle again from the 1800s says sickness is a sacred thing. One of God's great ordinances. Why does sickness happen? Was there sickness in the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin? No, nobody got sick. It wasn't a great ordinance of God when everything was perfect. Sickness is a result of the fall. It's a result of sin in our lives. 
Because sin destroys everything. And yet I think Ryle is correct. Because God's purpose in this world is not simply to bypass and work around all the wrong things as if he's just kind of like skipping from one side to the next and just, oh, avoid that real quick and then I can still work. But what does Jesus say? The purpose of the trial is that the glory of God might come through this illness. Through your illness. pastor who's alive today, John Piper, has a very great phrase that he plugs into whatever book he feels like writing. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your retirement. Don't waste your cancer even. Don't waste your fill-in-the-blank. And it may be important for us to think in terms of this, that if God's great ordinances include sicknesses that he might ordain to allow these things to happen, that our responsibility is not to become the greatest prayer warrior ever who, who trusts God so perfectly and, and, and becomes a perfect witness, but rather to fix our eyes so clearly, so pointedly to the glory of God and to say, if that is the ultimate end, and if Christ is my truest friend, what am I going to lose through this illness, even if this illness does result in death? Which Jesus very promptly said, is not the case for Lazarus. So his disciples, they're, they're thinking about something else here too. Because the last time he was in Jerusalem, people tried to kill him. And he got away yet again. Good job, Jesus. You're a really great escape artist. But if you go back now, I mean, people are already looking for you. I mean, they were ready to stone you when you headed out that last time. I imagine that if you go back into the city, people still have a rock in their hands wandering the streets trying to find Jesus of Nazareth. Is this a really good idea right now? And perhaps they're even thinking for their own safety. We're going to be associated with this guy. I mean, that's what Thomas says in the end, doesn't he? Let's go to Jerusalem too. I guess we're going to die with him. Thomas, who kind of becomes this hopelessly brave character. The only thing that is left for us is death, even though that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus said. The sickness does not lead to death. It leads to glory. What Thomas perhaps should have said, let us go also that we might glorify God with him. But our minds so quickly take the pessimistic route. Well, I guess we're all going to die anyway. Is there really any point? Why do I keep trying harder and following Christ and trying to read my Bible more and trying to be more like Jesus and my relationships and my friendships at work? Why do I waste time telling people the gospel? Wouldn't it be better to just accept the inevitable? You might say, yes, it would be better to accept the inevitable, but what is the inevitable? Is death the inevitable thing, or is the glory of God the inevitable thing? If you're in Christ, death is not inevitable. Death does not win over our illnesses, our trials, our difficulties, or even our physical end. And that is why Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. I am the resurrection and the life. Sickness is a sacred thing. And it'll be used for the glory of God. What does your prayer look like? Your prayer life look like when you face sickness and challenge and difficulty? Is it just to simply get through this thing so that then you can meet God on the other side? Do you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and the crowds were coming near to him and trying to take him by force to make him king? What did he do with his disciples? 
He didn't say, protect me, disciples. They're trying to get me. He said, y'all get in a boat, and I'm going to force you out onto the lake, whereupon you will run into a terrible storm that will scare all of you fishermen. And does Jesus simply say, hey, it's going to be fine. I'll see you on the other side. Or does he meet them in the midst of the waves and speak peace over the storm? And do they find their peace in him? Jesus teaches them in verses 9 and 10, we need to walk during the day. You know, it's so easy for us at, in our work, work life, once 4 o'clock comes around, that's kind of a, a moment of decision, isn't it? Like if you clock out at 5, you've got 60 minutes left, what's the goal? Either it's the time where you go, all right, here we go. My keyboard's going to just be lit up, smoke coming out and everything because i, I got to get this thing done. Or is it, well, it's 4 o'clock. Is it really worth starting a new thing? I mean, I'm going to be done in 60 minutes. And particularly, we might feel that second way if we had already accomplished quite a bit. You know, today might be a good day to leave early. Rather, Jesus says there are 12 hours in the day. As if to say, we might be in hour 11, because we are, in fact, in chapter 11. We might be in hour 11. The sun might be going down in the next 60 minutes, but that doesn't mean I should stop working. If anyone walks in the light, sorry, he, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And again, there's a clear representation of Jesus in this light of the world thing. He's called himself that already. So if we are those who have the light of this world, we need to be about what the light of the world is doing. Because the night is coming. And these interruptions and roadblocks and barriers and sidesteps and distractions of things like sicknesses and financial trouble and relational issues, we don't have time to let them be side issues. We can't just simply say, well, I'll get back on track with the thing that God created me to do after I take care of these other things. You don't have time for that. The only time that you have is to get to the glory of God through those distractions and through those illnesses. To not let your life be so submissive to circumstances, but to be submissive to Christ, who again took on flesh and dwelt among us, living that perfect life on our behalf, because we, on the contrary, as we sung early, earlier are prone to wander prone to leave the god we love and we need those moments where we might come back to him and say lord here's my heart take it and seal it that means don't let me take it back keep it for yourself keep it at the place of your throne that the direction and purpose and reality of my life might be in line with yours The disciples, just as we do so often, miss the purpose. We so often choose to walk in the darkness without the light of the world. Recall those three options. When those trials come, we think, is this a test? Is this an error? Is this a mystery? It could be any of those things. And we're not always going to be sure. But the thing that we can be sure of is its ultimate end and purpose is the glory of God. So Thomas, again, as one uh, commentator said, is actually wiser than he realizes in saying, let us go die with him. 
because we do need to lay down our lives to follow Christ. We're not going to be able to maintain all of our goals, dreams, and desires and fulfill the purpose of his glory. We have to let all of our goals, dreams, and desires come under the intention and the goal of his glory supremely. So are we trying to figure these things out? Or do we keep our eyes fixed on our friend and let his glory lead us through those trials? Christ, our friend, comes to us by the cross with the gift of growing faith. See, again, the end, that great end was God's glory, but the necessary response is a growing faith, a growing trust in him. And this is his promise. The promise of, us, of him raising us with him to newness of life is our ultimate reward, our ultimate satisfaction. Is that, yeah, this, this body is going to waste away. This outward tent is day by day getting worse and worse and worse. But my inward self is being renewed and is being prepared for resurrection and for the hope that what Christ has done on the cross, he's done in my place to give me life. And suddenly, if that is in view... If we have the view that Jesus has, even though we didn't read the next part of the story, verse 15 makes so much more sense. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Can you believe this? That the, the comfort and the reassurance and the peace of Lazarus' family was secondary to the growing faith, not only of Jesus' disciples, but also of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Jesus revealed that to be a secondary thing. So it ought to be in our own hearts as well. Anytime that we say these prayers of, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lord, he whom you love is tired. Lord, he whom you love is confused. Lord, he whom you love doesn't know what to do. We are implicitly asking for resolution. But Christ's answer, whether, whether he does offer resolution in that moment or in that day or in that week, his answer always includes the fact that even if we can't have healing, we can have more of him. His presence strengthens us in his power. His presence calms us with his friendship. And his presence reveals his glory to grow our faith. That is his end goal. That is his design every time, whether it comes through a test of your faith, or whether it comes through a consequence of a bad decision, or whether it just remains a mystery, the truth is it will always result in the growing of the faith of God's people. Christ ultimately comes to us at the cross to deal with our sin so that faith to trust in our justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and that he is our substitute, he alone is our substitute, that we bring nothing to the cross to help pay, for, pay the price that is of infinite value. That is how Christ meets us, and that is how he sustains us. That is how we can say, okay, listen, today life is hard because of blank, but Christ has conquered sin and death. I might have said this last week, and I'm sorry-ish if I did, but Rico Tice had this great thing that he said. He has, why is today a better day than yesterday? It's because I'm one day closer to seeing Jesus. And even if life gets harder tomorrow, tomorrow is still a better day than today. And I love Sundays because I get to see all you guys and 
It's like we get to look at God's word. We get to lift up our voices. Sundays are great, but tomorrow, Monday, is a better day because I'm closer to seeing my friend and my Lord face to face. What a joy for us to be called the friends of God. That Jesus says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus is sick. He's not careless and heartless towards him. You need only to look to the cross and consider the weight of what Jesus took on your behalf to recognize that when he delays, he doesn't delay out of a callous disinterest. He delays for a greater interest in your good and in his Father's glory. We need to let our sicknesses and our trials become eclipsed by the glory of Christ. That's what growing faith really looks like. And that's what John cares so much about in this book. He talks about believing over and over and over again. And you're like, okay, I get it. I mean, there's got to be something else to this Christian faith, right? No, it's called the Christian faith for a reason. Because you need to grow in your faith. You need, to, you need to face these trials. You need to get sick sometimes. And not immediately rush to saying, Lord, heal me so I can go do that thing. This is the thing. Lazarus had to get sick. Because it was to the benefit not only of him and his sisters, but to the disciples and all y'all today. That your faith might grow. That you might trust him a little bit more. What can sickness ultimately do to us? It'll either grow our faith or it'll kill us. Either way, I'm closer to Jesus than I was before I got sick. May that be on our hearts. The increase of faith would have been lacking if he went right away and healed Lazarus, Don Carson says. If he would have just said, oh, let's drop what we're doing. He's sick. I can get to him before anything gets worse. Let's go take care of this right now. No. He waited two, two days. Why? In spite of hearing that his friend was sick? No. Because when he heard that Lazarus was sick, so he stayed two days longer. So may we rejoice in following our friend, the light of this world, and our Lord and Savior, for the faith of our friends as well. It's important to me, as your brother in Christ, that when you get sick and when life gets hard, that I find the glory of Christ in your life. And it's important for others around you as well. We need that encouragement. And does it not make sense that the disciples of Jesus, who laid his life down, so that many might be saved. Does it not make sense that his disciples would do the same thing? Not that our suffering atones for anyone's sins, but does it not point to the Savior whom we follow? And is it not his character being formed in you to accept the trials and difficulties and challenges and the sicknesses even, with the hope that the glory of God might come through it? What could it really cost you to live like Christ in this way? It'll cost you everything but it'll cost you more if you don't. Because if, if, you, if you choose to sidestep the purpose of glory in your life, is Jesus even your friend? Is he an acquaintance? Is he just somebody that you know about? We need to reckon with this seriously. We need to not dismiss our pain and sorrow. Uh, he whom you love is sick. Uh, look at verse 35 of chapter 11. You'll know this is the shortest verse in the whole Bible, especially to, fun to read in the red letter edition. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Boy, do we over-spiritualize that sometimes. Oh, he wept because they were so faithless. And they, 
He was at a funeral, man. Jesus was around people who were sad because Lazarus was dead, and he too was sad about that. He doesn't stand over your sickbed going, you better figure out this whole glory thing. Where's your faith? Did you say please? He's not like that. He's with us in the midst of that. He is able, as we said at the beginning, by his divine power to bring a resurrection to those who are dead, spiritually even, to bring new life. But he's also able, because he is God and because he is man, he's able to bear with us and to feel the weight of our sorrow and not in a condescending, acting kind of way, but with a legitimate and real experience of the human condition that when we see our loved ones sick, we feel a little bit of that, don't we? Because we know what it's like to be sick. And we certainly feel for the person whom we love. So Christ does that even better than we can. If Christ, who is our light, who is our good shepherd, who is our rabbi, if he is our sanctuary, then there's nothing that we lack by seeking his glory for the building up of each other's faith. There's nothing that he's keeping from you for that purpose. If you feel that God is keeping something from you, it's probably because you're heading in the wrong direction. Not for his glory, but for your own. If we can line ourselves up with the glory of Christ as our ultimate end in this life and not death, and we're going to realize that treasure trove that we have of Christ, of his spirit's presence in us, giving us everything that we need to live for him. So can you rest in the truth of his glory and in the assumption, not, not, a, not an aggressive assumption or a, a disrespectful one, but in, in the expectation, I should say, that your faith will grow and that other people's faith, faith around you will grow as well. We're going to sing Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, which is one of my favorite new songs from the last couple of years because it's so catechismic. It's got questions in it. We need to ask ourselves these questions as we sing them out. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hands? What comes apart from his commands? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Our friend, our Lord, our good shepherd, the light of the world. May we submit our lives to him for his glory, even in the midst of pain and sorrow and sickness, so that others might be edified and built up as well. Would you bow your heads, please, and pray with me? Lord, we thank you this morning for this great hope that we have that you have sent your son not to simply be an overlord or a ruler over us, but to be our friend. He who is truly in charge, he who holds all true authority and all real power is our friend. May we meditate on that even through the remaining hours of this day so that we might pursue his glory from the place of our hearts more than we did even before we came in here, perhaps. That it might even be on our lips, even at risk of being that annoying spiritual friend. What is the purpose of the glory of God in this? How are you going to increase my faith, friend who's sick, friend who's struggling? May we lay down our lives for the purpose of the glory of Jesus, laying down our own rights and our own plans, so that we might be built up together in our faith for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.